Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Ake Woman podcast, where we bring you stories from South Asian women of the diaspora. Women keep pushing boundaries. And when we look, sound and think different, it's more of a struggle. Our podcast interviewees are women who fought the odds and found success. Today, we're thrilled to be speaking with Shazia Mirza, a British stand-up comedian, actress and writer. Just a heads up, we taped this interview during peak pandemic and before Indian origin Rishi Sunak became the Prime Minister. Shazia was born in Birmingham to Muslim Pakistani parents who immigrated in the 60s. She was the ideal Desi girl who studied biochemistry at University of Manchester, did a postgrad in education at the University of London and began her career as a science teacher. But before long, Shazia chucked it all to join acting school and leap into uncharted waters. Two decades later, she's one of the most successful comedians in the UK, even winning the 2016 Evening Standard Award for one of England's 1,000 most influential people in comedy. Shazia has numerous awards, been on countless television and radio shows, toured extensively and performed at comedy festivals. Her show, Kardashians Made Me Do It, sold out during its run at the Soho Theatre and played for 103 nights across UK, US, Sweden, Ireland and France. She's been featured in new shows like CNN's Amanpour, CBS's 60 Minutes, BBC's Women's Hour, France 24, Reuters and NBC's Last Comic Standing. Shazia has written columns for The Guardian, Daily Telegraph, Dawn, FT Magazine, Chicago Tribune and The New Statesman, among other publications. Let's prepare for a rollicking time as Shazia tells us about her journey, tongue firmly in cheek. Hi, Shazia. We're so happy you managed to take time from your busy schedule and speak with us. That was so long. I don't think this interview is going to be as long as those credits. So let's talk about your life, Shazia. You were born in Birmingham. What was it like growing up as a Pakistani girl in Birmingham? Well, I don't know if you know anything about Birmingham in America, but it's not like Birmingham, Alabama. It was a ghetto when I was growing up and everybody lives there. You know, there was everybody of every kind, every background, every gender, every sexuality. There was loads of Irish. There was loads of Pakistanis. I went to school with a lot of Catholics. And there was loads of Jamaicans. There was loads of Afro-Caribbeans. I mean, every type of person is in Birmingham. And that's how I grew up. And I never knew any different apart from knowing different people of different backgrounds and different colours. So that was always normal to me. And when I left Birmingham, I didn't realise what a privilege that was. Because most people 
don't grow up in that environment. I remember going to university and meeting a girl who had never had a black friend or known a black person in her life. And so for me to grow up in that environment, everybody was always normal to me. I never thought of any group of people like, I don't know them, I'm not comfortable with them. They were all always part of my life. So there was no feeling of prejudice and racism because you grew up in a very... There was all of that. And it was a very much in your face and on a big scale. Like when I was growing up, they had the Hansworth riots where Hansworth was a very black area of Birmingham. There was always tensions between black people and the police, like in America now still. And there was always black people who were innocent getting accused of crimes just because they were black. They were being stopped in cars because they were black. And this happened all the time. And there were riots on TV, white police officers against black people. It was the same against the Irish community. It was the time of the IRA. If you had an Irish accent, you were always accused of blowing something up. There was a famous case of the Birmingham Six. Six men were accused of blowing up the rotunda. And they went to prison for life. And they didn't do it. They didn't commit the crime, but they were Irish. And it was the same with Asian people, that we would get accused of doing things that we hadn't done. So there was prejudice. And it was in your face. And people were openly racist. What I realized coming to America to do comedy and stuff in the recent years is that there's racism in America, but you are very upfront about your racism. We know where you stand with it. Rodney King and all these cases over the years, we were very much aware of white police officers, black people in America. We knew all about it. What is dangerous about being in Britain is that there is racism, but it's always brushed under the carpet and it's pretended that it's not happening. It doesn't exist. And that is more dangerous because you never know who's on your side and who's not on your side. And you never know when you're going to be attacked. So you always like walking in the dark. Whereas in America, you're upfront about it. It's out in the open. It doesn't make it any better. But this is a very British thing to brush things under the carpet and pretend that they're not happening. That whole stiff upper lip thing. Yes. But then they think it's better to say that behind closed doors or in secret. So there must be some truth to the whole Meghan Markle thing too. Look, we all know, really, uh, we all know that if she'd have been white, i.e. if she'd have been Kate Middleton, she would not have got the abuse to the extent that she got. Because if you look at Kate, Kate has never had the abuse that Meghan has had where they drag her family into it and offer the family money to give interviews. We'll watch the Oprah interview. And, yeah, you know, they question the baby's skin colour. And Megan says there has been racism and there has been abuse. And what was really sad is, you know, that she was suicidal. She asked for help and nobody helped her. We know the press have been racist. They've said things and done things uh, to her which are clearly racist. Have you faced anything, Shazia, um, in terms of racism, press, even heckling at your shows and things like that because of you being a Muslim, brown woman? When I first started, just after 9-11, and 
that was a very difficult time because nobody really knew anything about Muslims then. And Muslims had never really been in the media. We didn't have Muslim villains like we do now. And so it was a very much a new thing. And it was the kind of thing that the Irish got in the 70s and 80s. That if you're Irish, if you had an Irish accent, all of a sudden you were a terrorist. That kind of swapped over to the Muslims um, in kind of 2003, 2004. And it's kind of carried on. Mm-hmm. But, you know, just because it's at the forefront because of ISIS and Syria and also because of Gaza now and what's happening in the Middle East, we're always kind of there in the firing line. But I have to say, the Jews get it just as bad. There is a huge amount of anti Semitism. And just because the Jews are generally privileged now, done very well for themselves, have very strong positions in Hollywood and in the media, people think that they're okay. But that's not true because they still get a lot of anti Semitism and they're still attacked, they still face prejudice. It's the same, obviously, as you've seen in America with black people. I read somewhere where you've said the Pakistanis in Birmingham think they are more British than the British. Well, they thought that they think they are. They are. They are more oh, British than the oh, British. Give us an example. Look, they've come here and they don't just want to fit in. They want to take over. And so they want to run everything and they want to be more British than the British. So they go out of their way to be British. They change their names to English names. Okay. And I've joked about this before about, you know, my dad being called Mohammed, but he calls himself Bob. They all do that. My mother, she's called Sarwat, she calls herself Sharon. They really want to be successful. Like in the cabinet here in Britain, in, um, in the government, there are people that are Muslim, that are Pakistani. They're not happy with just having a position in the cabinet. They want to run the country. They don't just want to do well. How did your parents adapt when they first came to the UK? I think they were the first generation that came in the 70s. So they didn't really know what to do then, but they tried very hard. Like at the time in the 70s and 80s, Princess Diana was everywhere. All the white women want to look like Diana. Um, And so they'd go into the hairdressers and ask for a lady dye haircut. My mum did the same. So this, you know, little Pakistani woman, she would go into the hairdressers and say, um, make me look like Princess Diana. And uh, the hairdresser would just go, oh, you know, I'll, I'll try my best. She'd wear Diana dresses, Diana hair. Um, and then they started to watch the Queen talking English on TV, my mum and dad, and they'd kind of emulate the Queen and try and talk like the Queen. And then they started developing very British mannerisms like at Christmas, we all celebrate Christmas, tree, presents, everything. The Queen would make a speech at three o'clock every Christmas. And my dad would not eat the Christmas dinner till the Queen had made the speech. (laughs) So we would be starving, waiting to eat the dinner and my dad would go, no. This can't happen. We've got to put the Queen on. We spoke for the Queen. Put the Queen on. The Queen makes a speech. And then we will have the halal chicken. (laughs) And so there was always this thing about we're holding on to our roots, but we're going to try and be British at the same time. 
So it had to be halal chicken though. It could not be any other type. Halal, always halal. And then they had a Christmas tree with an angel at the top, but they colored the face in brown so that um, it was kind of a compromise. Yeah, we're going to have the tree, but we'll have a brown face on the top of the tree. How has it been for your parents? I read a book called Homeland Elegies by Ayad Akhtar, who is a Muslim American. And one of the things that he grapples with his parents, his uncles, they all wondered what is homeland for them? Would it be America or would it be Pakistan or India? There was never any issue for me because I was born in Britain. But for your parents? Ah, do you know, once they came here, they were British. They wanted to be British. They were very educated, you see, my parents, and driven by wanting to better yourself. Like all my brothers and sisters and me, we all went to university, all five of us. My mother was a teacher. They were very much into education, getting the best degrees, uh, becoming a doctor, dentist, lawyer. Obviously, you had to be one of those. And really being successful. They were very much into that, very much. So when they came here, they wanted all of that. But they also wanted to hold on to their cultural values from back home. And that's very difficult to do when you're living in a very Western place. How was it for you torn between being English outside and, you know, watching the Queen and eating your halal chicken and still trying to identify with the Muslim culture that your parents were trying to keep alive in your home? Yeah, that's difficult. And I'm sure that every person who's brought up in a kind of dual culture has the same conflict, um, especially if they're born here, because this is all you know. Do you have any story that you can share about this culture clash? Yeah, I never understood the other way, you know, what they wanted to hold on to. I only understood my way. I wanted to do things that all my white friends were doing. I just wanted to be white. So I wanted to have blonde hair. Um, I wanted to wear mini skirts. I went to an all-girls school. And when they were about 12 or 13, they would have boyfriends. They would go on camping holidays. One of my friends, she came into school one day with a love bite on her neck. And she was explaining to me like how she got it in like the parking lot of this supermarket with this boy. He was 16, she was 30. And I just thought, wow, that sounds so exciting. I want that. How do I get that? And um, I went through this phase of when I was 13 or 14 of going into shops and asking out boys and men to go on a date with me. <laughs> I was really young and they'd tell me to go away. I just went wild. I just got to men in a shop. I'd go to a man and go, hi, do you fancy coming out to a nightclub with me? And I just thought it was a joke because... <laughs> I was, I was a kid. <laughs> Did your parents ever know this? No. No. They don't know anything. You have a column, I think, Diary of a Disappointed Daughter in The Guardian. Do you feel you're disappointed, your parents? Oh, they are. They are disappointed. My generation will probably be different, but my parents' generation... They wanted us to all be successful. They wanted us to have degrees and, you know, uh, be doctor, dentist, lawyer, uh, be really high powered, you know, be really accepted by the British public and people in Britain. But at the end of the day, 
They really don't give a shit unless you're married or not. And if you're not married, that cancels out all of your achievements. They don't mean anything. You've got to be the doctor, dentist, lawyer and be successful. But you also have to be married. And I think that because I'm not married yet, all my achievements, as my mum said, they are wasted. What a waste, my mum said. So does she try to set you up with people? She used to, for years, try to set me up with people. But she can't find anybody in my age range anymore. The people she's trying to get me set up with are all dead. All the people she knows now are dead. They don't know anybody anymore. And now she's heard about the internet. Oh, my God. Like, they know about cousins and stuff who've married people they've met on the internet. She said to me the other day, have you heard of the internet and the websites? Everybody's going on the websites now and meeting people on the websites. Everybody's doing it. Why aren't you on there? And she said, I'll get the name for you. She's been going around asking people about websites and internet and saying, you know, I've got a spare daughter going. Anybody want her? Anybody just take this woman so I can die. I cannot die. I'm hanging on till my daughter is married. And I'm like, don't let me stop you. If you want to go, you go. Because don't wait around for me. It might never happen. So you never know, you probably have a Bumble and a Tinder profile and an OkCupid, you know, that your mom set up for you. <laughs> Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And she's got so desperate recently. She's like, okay, look, it's best you just bring home anything. We don't care if he's black or white. Just bring anything home and you'll be with anyone now and it'll be okay. My mother has done Hajj 20 times. She's been to Mecca 20 times because she's so traumatized. She's like, um, every time I, I see you doing something, I feel I need to go back because I need to pray because things are obviously not working. And it's all because of you. Oh, yes. I'm the reason for everything. When was that aha moment? Because you went to university, you did biochemistry, you were a science teacher. What switched in your head and you said, I need to now become a comedian. It was an accident, really, because I don't think comedy is something that you plan to do. Nobody 
didn't when I was growing up, you know. Nobody did comedy. Nobody looked like me. Women didn't do it. Women of color didn't do it. And it was white men. Also, there wasn't much humor in our house. I'd never been to a comedy club in my life before I started stand-up. The first time I did stand-up comedy was the first time I ever entered a comedy club. I never knew this thing existed. I think when I was growing up, I saw Richard Pryor live in concert on TV one Christmas, and I thought he was hilarious, and I remember laughing a lot. I never thought, this is what I want to do, or this is what I'm going to do, or that there's a place for me to do this. Do you get anxious before a show? How do you prepare for a show? You know, I used to do stand-up every night of the week. And it was like a drug to me. It was everything. I, I couldn't live without doing it. Since the pandemic, I never did live stand-up for 14 months. And a part of me just died. I realized it's something that keeps me alive. It's everything to me. It was healing. It was uplifting. It was inspiring. It made me happy. I would laugh. It gave me a lot. And when I had to go back and do my first show, I was so nervous. I was so nervous. It was at a festival, outdoor festival in Britain. And there was about, oh God, maybe a thousand people in a tent outside, a bit like Coachella. And I was nearly sick. I was so nervous. And at the thought of going out there, everybody looking at me again. And I, I hope I'm funny. I hope I can still do this. I hope I'm still good at this. And I went out and I think because of the pandemic, people have not laughed. A lot of people have not laughed for so long. A lot of people have not been to a live event for so long. A lot of people have not been with other people in this environment together for such a long time. They were laughing hysterically. And I was standing there thinking, am I really funny or are they just really desperate? Mm -hmm. I thought, okay, I can do this. Because you never, in comedy, you can never sit back and think, I've done it. I'm great. I'm good at this. Oh, I know how to do this. Mm. Because the minute you think that, you will fall flat on your face. It will be a disaster. So I'm always on the edge. Can I do this? Will it be good? How am I going to be? How do you prepare yourself? Where do you get the inspiration for your comedies? Do you ever feel like, I don't care if people are going to heckle me. I'm going to say what I want to say and to hell with everybody else. I never think about the audience. I'm very selfish. I never think about the audience because if I thought about every audience I performed to, I would never say what I really want to say. I would never be true to myself. And I remember a long time ago watching David Bowie in an interview and he said, if you're an artist, never think about the audience. Never put the audience first because you will never do a true piece of work. You need to say what you want to say because this is about you. I'm on stage. That's my power. I say what I want to say. And if you don't like it, you don't have to listen to it. But I have to say what I think and my feelings about topics and what I think is funny. I can't cater for people. They'll never be happy. Suppose you're on stage and you're doing your routine and the audience is not reacting to you. They're not laughing. It's silence. How easy is it for you to pivot and change? 
Well, this has happened obviously a lot uh, in my career, like in the beginning, there would be a time when people wouldn't laugh, people were offended, people were shocked, people weren't reacting how I wanted them to react. And you know what? It does make you nervous. Sometimes I'd stop mid-routine, change to another routine, you know, all this kind of stuff. And as you go on, I've had many bad experiences in stand-up. You know, I've died a million times. I've been booed off. I've been heckled. I've been, had abuse. I've had terrible reviews. I've had death threats. I have had all of this. And part of the reason for that is, you know, in Britain, I was the first Muslim female stand-up comedian. And I got a lot of pressure to be amazing, a lot of pressure to be the voice of my people. I got a lot of pressure to voice women, to voice people of color, to voice Muslims. And, you know, I just wanted to be a stand-up. So I had a lot of criticism. I had a lot of abuse. It was all very difficult. And it was very lonely because in comedy, everything you do is alone. You write alone, you travel alone, you perform alone. And what you're saying is what you think alone in your head. It's a very solitary and lonely thing to do. And then the journey that you take is also alone. And because I was the only Muslim woman doing stand-up at the time, there was nobody like me. There was no support group. There was nobody that understood what I was going through. I was on my own. And I think that was me in my profession, but I'm sure there are other women of color in other professions who also feel that about themselves. Like Meghan Markle, I mean, she is the first woman of color in the royal family in our time. And everybody else is whiter than white in that family. And what she's done, she's had to go it alone. She doesn't even have a family. The only person at the wedding was her mother. She had no brothers, no sisters, no uncles. That is the story of a lot of women of color's journey. They're on their own in a very white environment. And no matter how nice people are, because there are a lot of nice, supportive white men to me in comedy, you're in that journey by yourself, really. Many women we've spoken to talk about this journey that they take where they're trying to break into a white male-oriented profession. But many of them also say they've had mentors in their life who've actually helped open doors for them and helped them through their journey. Have you had somebody like that? I never had one. And I really wish I'd had one. I really wish I'd had a woman, a strong woman, who mentored me, guided me, protected me, advised me. I wish I had that person. Or man, you know. I mean, I've had agents and all my agents say to me, you know, I believe in you and I think you're great and all this. Considering the journey that you went through, do you now look to mentor younger South Asians? or? I do. I, I think it happens organically. I have a few young girls who are in the industry like, one of them is not a comedian, but she is a presenter on TV. She's also black, woman of color. And she always rings me up and asks me for advice. She always texts me and say, you know, what should I wear? What do you think of this? I'm in this situation. What do you think I should do? And I always advise her. And I think it's really important to make sure if somebody asks you for that help and advice, that you do give it 
because I think we live in a different time now with social media. And I think a lot of young people find things harder in a way and are not strong enough to take criticism. I know a lot of young people have mental health problems because of this social media time we're living in. Now, I've got some new material which I'm writing, which is about strong women. I'm always labelled a strong woman. And if you're a strong woman, oh, you're going to be all right. She doesn't need help. She doesn't need advice. And then when the strong woman commits suicide or something terrible happened, everybody goes, oh, oh my God, I'm really shocked she did that. She was such a strong woman. People said that about Diana. They used to refer to her as a strong woman. Yeah, she tried to commit suicide four times. Um, Sylvia Plath, they referred to her as a strong woman. She killed herself. Marilyn Monroe, she killed herself. Yet in their life, they always referred to themselves as strong women. And then people are shocked when they become alcoholics or they kill themselves or something terrible happens. But I think strong women or women that are deemed strong are actually the most vulnerable because people think they don't need to be helped and they get left by the wayside. I have written some material which is about being labelled a strong woman and why this is unhelpful and inconclusive because nobody is any one thing. And often if somebody is labelled a strong woman, it's because they feel the need to have a strong front. But inside, there must be some vulnerability. What to you is the award that you treasure the most and which made you think, aha, I finally made it? I never think that I've made it. I never, ever, ever think that I've made it. I don't feel that I've achieved what I've wanted to achieve so much so far. What is it that you want to achieve? I want my books to be published. I want my own TV show. I want to do films. I want my sitcom commissioned. I want to act in comedy films. Like I'd love to work with Al Pacino. I'd love to work with Woody Allen. I'd love to work with Quentin Tarantino. I don't think you should ever give up on your dreams. I think women give up on their dreams far more easily than men because women are more challenged in their life. You know, we have to have children and we're under pressure to get married. At the same time, can we have a career? We have to always sometimes take a step back from our career to look after our children, to look after the family. Women are under pressure to make their marriage work. If the marriage doesn't work, it's the woman's fault. Oh my God. Uh, you know, men can get married three, four, five times there is a stigma attached to women that get married three, four, five times or have kids from different men. There are so many more challenges for women. If you don't have children by a certain age, then you still want children. Women in their 40s, they want children. Then they have to go through IVF. Then they have to maybe try and think about adoption. Women face these challenges more than men. And so I think we give up on our dreams a bit more easily. Is it a dream for you to eventually find somebody and have a meaningful relationship, have children even maybe? I don't think that it's a dream. My dreams are working with Al Pacino. It's based on my hard work. Marriage is such a personal thing and it's something you can't engineer and make happen in the same way that maybe you can make your career happen. In your career, it's pretty straightforward a lot of the time. If you work really hard and you get good at what you do, 
you will get to where you want. Eventually, some door will open. Somebody will offer you the opportunity because you're so good, they can't say no. And it doesn't work like that in your personal life. You can work at finding someone. If I wanted to just get married, I could have got married yesterday, the day before, to anybody. I'm probably looking for a very deep connection and I want to marry somebody I'm madly in love with and they are with me. And that is something that I can't engineer. What does Shazia do to switch off from comedy and dreams and pursuing her goals and career? I do travel a lot and I love that. I think it's a privilege waking up in a different country, in a different bed. I don't know where I am. I don't know anybody in that country. That is such an amazing thing of wonderment. I just feel so lucky that I have been able to do that so much in my life. And I love performing in different countries going all over the world, doing stand-up in different countries. And then I also love swimming. Oh. I swim in the sea at every opportunity. I've swam in seas all over the world. Which is your favorite sea? The south of France. I love swimming in that sea. I just love it. I love the Caribbean as well. I first saw you on stage in India. I know you perform in America. You performed all over the world. Are you received differently in all these different countries as a brown Desi woman? Which audience do you feel was the best out of all these countries? I loved performing in India because I performed in India when stand-up comedy was very new. It was about to start and it was very exciting. The Indians were just such a raucous audience. But I loved performing in Pakistan as well because they had never seen stand-up before and it was also new and exciting. There's an etiquette in these countries, mm -hmm. India, Pakistan, the Middle East, where you can't just openly talk about sex or religion or drugs. So when a stand-up comedian comes on stage and jokes about these things, they are things that in polite society nobody talks about and nobody jokes about. So to have a comedian and a woman and a Muslim woman stand on stage and say these things, it was like the floodgates had opened and people were wild with laughter. And it was funny for me. It was funny for them because it's kind of the elephant in the room in the Desi world, the sex, the drugs. We can't talk about this. We don't do that. So to joke about it, it was just outrageous. And I just loved it. And you just shattered every ceiling there. I did. I loved it. Yeah. I have a rapid fire round for you. Are you ready? Yeah, yeah. Birmingham or Rawalpindi? Birmingham. The Quran or the Daily Mail? The Quran. Kulcha or taco? Taco. The University of London or Manchester? London. Alcohol or pot? Alcohol. Comedy festivals or solo shows? Solo shows. What's your favorite cuisine? I'm vegetarian. I love saag paneer. That's another aberration, a Muslim vegetarian. What about the halal chicken stuff? I, I've been vegetarian for 13 years. Wow. Russell Peters or Veer Das? Veer Das. Salwar or slacks? Shalwar. Favorite actress? Elizabeth Taylor. And your favorite comedian? Richard Pryor. Shazia. On behalf of Ake Women and my colleague Meza Jai Shankar, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to speak with us. Let's hope in due time your mom will have a reason to stop going on Hajj. 
for our listeners you can follow our podcast at ake women global on insta facebook linkedin and twitter namaste thank you planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands plus quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with quince go to quince.com/trip for free shipping and 365 day returns